Fawcett with Carl Reader, helping you to control your time, your income, and your life. Hello and welcome to The Boss It Show. Now, this episode is going to be a little bit unusual compared to the other ones, in that you're going to hear me being interviewed by someone else. Now, this was a chat that I had with my buddy, Nick Elston, and I've known Nick from the speaking circuit. You know, we'd bump into each other at various events. And it's safe to say that Nick actually threw me a bit of a curveball in this one. So I'm sure you would love to hear it. It's almost the first time that I've ever been left speechless. And I say almost, because as you can imagine, it's very hard for me to be speechless. In this chat, not only will you hear that point, you will also um, hear a little bit about my motivation. Um, we've had a really good conversation about a variety of things, you know, from public speaking. Uh, we talked about my book. We talked about uh, mental health. There was all sorts of things. So I'm convinced that you guys will get some massive value from this. So it'll be a little bit different than usual. You'll hear in a moment the intro to Nick's podcast and enjoy the chat. Hey everyone, a big welcome to the Forge Ahead Show, hosted by me, Nick Elston, inspirational speaker, creator of unique mental health engagement strategies, a transformational speaking coach, and a mentor to have in your corner. The Forge Ahead Show brings you the storytellers, the influencers, the people who have gone from adversity to excitement, forging something better, something beautiful, something powerful. So stay tuned dive in and be inspired by today's very special guest. Hey everyone, a big welcome back to the Forge Ahead Show, season two, episode 16. Time is flying and today I've got an amazing guest, actually the final part in the trilogy, but you may not even realise it and I'll come on to that later on. Uh, but we have the wonderful Mr. Carl Reader. Big round of applause to Carl. Hey. Hey, Nick. Thank you so much for having me. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. How you doing? Yeah, I'm good, thanks. I'm curious about the trilogy. So, um, mm. so yeah, I'm, I'm going to be waiting with bated breath. <laughs> Absolutely. So, before we go there, um, tell everybody uh, kind of who you are, what you do, what you're about, that kind of stuff. Yeah, sure. So um, I'll try and go with a shortened version. So I'm Carl. I'm an author of um, three business books. I was um, really an accidental businessman. I think it's the best way of putting it. You know, I um, <laughs> left school at a very early age before my GCSEs, fell into a white yet in hairdressing, didn't work out, then fell into accountancy along the way, bought the business out, um, scaled it up and then went through the process of stepping away. Um, I mean, I've had a fantastic journey since, you know, I've written the books, I've been a newspaper columnist in um, most of the newspapers, you know, I've been in, in fact, in every newspaper apart from the Sunday sport, thankfully, um, hopefully they don't come knocking at the door, um, been on most, of, most of the TV channels, most radio stations as a business commentator, because one of the things that really got to me, and maybe it's because of my upbringing as a normal lad, Nick, is that business is often framed as being something that's not for the ordinary person. Mm. You know, I was um, I was blessed to have a grammar school education and um, obviously pissed it away by leaving early. But um, I remember in business studies being taught things like about share prices and the way that big companies in big glass buildings work. 
And what I found out was after about 10 years of working, I found out the business ain't like that at all. It's really boring and it's, it requires hard work, but it's not complicated. It doesn't need detailed formulas and so on. So what I've tried to do, and I guess my life's passion since then, is really spreading that word. But business isn't easy. You know, it's hard work, but it mm. certainly isn't complicated. Thank you so much for that intro. I love that. And you covered a lot of stuff there. Kind of like rabbit holes were created all over the place we're going to go down. So I think that traditional vision of business, I always remember kind of at school, there was this kind of um, the tours around the factories and the offices stuff. So to get you in mind of what you want to do. And like all the offices were mahogany walls, mahogany desks, and probably mahogany chairs. Yeah. It was crazy, wasn't it? Because that was kind of the perception of business was this kind of this world, this kind of preconceived. And it's daunting and it's scary and it's heavy. It is. And you know what? As a, as a youngster, so, uh, this is a real passion of mine. And I hope that I don't take up too much of the audience's time speaking about this. We could be talking you in feel three free, hours. Carry on. <laughs> um, but, you know, it's the reason why I became a trustee of Young Enterprise and um, do mm. the charitable work in that space as well. Because, look, I, I, I was a normal lad. I grew up in a council estate. We didn't have too much money floating around. Um, what I didn't realise as, as a kid was that my dad had a business. You know, that sounds like madness, doesn't it? Because most of most of us nowadays, you know, I'm fortunate enough now to have, um, I, I guess, some might say escalated a social ladder, or whatever you put it. I'm, I'm fortunate but I don't have to live on the council anymore. And, you know, we, we brag about being in business and we all shout about being this aspirational entrepreneur and so on. But look, when I was a, when I was a 10 year old kid, my dad was a locksmith and he was self-employed. But I didn't realise, you know, the, the connection didn't take place because of the disconnect between the education system and what we were taught within junior school, senior school, and particularly GCSE business studies about what a business was, which was this big unattainable thing that, um, you know, bankers invest in and share prices and so on. And the reality, which is that one in seven of us are self-employed. You know, if you walk out of your door, you look left, you look right. If you've, if you've got houses near you, yeah, you, you look forward, look left, look right, you're going to see a business owner. And that's just mind-blowing for most people who believe it's unattainable. But here's the thing, Nick. Business owners are people just like you and me. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And that's it. And I think especially with the kind of more, should we say, fluid uh, kind of uh, time that we're living through, actually micro businesses, small businesses actually are only going to be on the rise. Um, oh, completely. I, I really do hope so, because for me, it was one of the biggest, um, I, I guess, eye-openers of my life was reading a book called The 4-Hour Workweek. Now, I don't mm. know if you've come across that book, but it's by yes. a guy called Tim Ferriss. Um, so for the listeners, if, yeah, if you haven't heard of it, it's Tim Ferriss, The 4-Hour Workweek. And mm. whilst Tim was a bit of a plonker in terms of both his writing style and the stuff that he did, the principles are absolutely sound. And they were the eye-opener for me. But you know what? I don't need to live life like society had primed me to. I don't need to put on a suit and tie, get up at you know, 8 o'clock in the morning, commute, 9 o'clock at the desk, leave at 5, Monday to Friday, and then magically switch off at the end of it. So you know, that, that was a real eye-opener for me. And I, it's, that, um, it's that control. you know, And it, and it might be that... Being self-employed means that you work harder, you're paid less, but it doesn't matter. It's being in control of it, choosing who you work for, when you work, and so on. It's just something magical for us as humans, isn't it? It is. I think also it's part of a, a kind of a conditioning belief of kind of like get a proper job kind of thing. I know yeah. 
as a speaker yourself, that when I first, uh, what, five, six years ago now, um, actually in the world of professional speaking, that people, even people really close to me would say, that's not a job, you just, you won't, and no matter what you say at that point, nothing changes that. And I think for me, that's the real power of uh, the entrepreneurial community for sure. But you say self-employed people, small businesses, that they're, they're having to go out and break those kind of boundaries themselves because whatever they say at that time, it's not going to change anything, is it? Definitely. And in fact, Nick, you've um, you've just given me a memory that I need to share. I love to blurt it out when it comes to mind. But you might remember when we first met, which was at the HR department conference. Yes. And I can't remember where it was. I was, um, I was the keynote speaker that day. And you know what? You, you were saying it's not a job. And I just immediately had a flashback to that day. Because I can tell you something, it really is a job. It's hard work, isn't it, speaking? Oh. Um, shall I tell you what happened to me that day? And you might have had no Please. idea. Uh, yeah, okay, I'm, I'm, so, definitely. I was going to talk about kind of how we met anyways. This is a great way in. So as if we really have planned it. a lovely segue. <laughs> yeah. almost like I read the emails that you sent me. <laughs> but look, I, I remember that day clearly. And it was back when I was driving my BMW 7 Series. I just had it wrapped and I was really proud of it. And the night before that event, my car got broken into or attempted to be broken into. And um, yeah, the thief, it was on my driveway and they tried to crowbar the boot open. And I had, I'd only realised that something was a bit odd because the, the, it had just been wrapped. So it had immediately doubled in value because it looked nice. And there was a mark in the wrap. So it was clear that something had happened, but I wasn't sure what. Now, what I didn't know, Nick, was that my um, the boot, they must have actually got it open and ruined the mechanism inside. Because you know when you open your boot, it opens up and it stays up, doesn't it? Yeah. Well, there, there I was trying to get my box of startup coach books out of the boot. You might remember, um, I, I, think, I think I gave you a copy then. I, I, I can't remember precisely. I know we certainly had a picture taken with one. That's um, right, yeah. Oh, your memory is very, yeah. very good. <laughs> well, well, it is, and I'll tell you why it is. Half hour before we met, maximum, you know, no more than half hour before we met, I'd opened up my boot, got this big box out, and the boot landed, slap bang on my head. <laughs> oh, geez. So for anyone who says public speaking isn't a job, try <laughs> to do it when you're half concussed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. I think that... There's certainly in that. There's certainly trips and hazards. I think in the in this kind of world as we record this in June, um, kind of the old school kind of worries were: Will the plane land on time? Will the train get there on time? Um, am I going to freeze? Now it's is the Wi-Fi working? Will the dog shut up? It's a whole new yeah. different set of challenges. But you're right: a bang on concussion before you go on stage is never a good thing. Oh, I can I can give you a few stories on stage. So another one. Um, it was about three years ago. And in fact, I can tell you, I can tell you exactly when it was, but I couldn't pinpoint the year, but it was when mm. the Beast of the East hit. You, you must remember okay. the Beast of the East. Yeah, When yeah. we were hit by um, a, a really unseasonal weather event. Uh, you know, it was February, so you expect it to be cold, but you don't expect it to be so cold. And I'm speaking at Printworks in London, and Printworks is this huge venue, which is normally used for raves and all sorts of events. And heating had packed up. So there I was in London. And most of the attendees were wearing coats. And the, um, the organisers of the event actually bought blankets for people for the afternoon. Anyway, I was speaking in the morning. 
And I just had a brand new coat that I bought. And I'm really proud of it, you know. It was like, it, it was my pride and joy and I was wearing it. And it was a, um, it was a parka jacket and it was full up with feathers. So anyway, I, I got on stage and I've got a couple of routines that I go through when I'm on stage. And most speakers have these. And yeah. for me, I, I have two very particular things that I like to do. I like to scope out the room before being in there. And I like to speak to someone before being on stage. Um, what I find is that by having a conversation with someone, first of all, it gives you hopefully a friendly face in the audience that you can, you know, if, you, if you're dying on your feet, you can you can at least look at them and, and hope and pray through your eyes for a bit of support. Um, but also, it's um, it allows you to test the acoustics of the room without being clear that you're testing. It allows you to gauge things like how far your voice travels and so on. So anyway... I saw this guy that I knew who had um, a guy called John Dawson sat down at the um, front of the room. So that's great. So I had my bag with me. I chucked my bag behind the stage, took my coat off, chucked my coat behind the stage. Went over, started speaking to him. Next thing I knew, okay, must have been speaking for about three, four minutes. Out the corner of my eye, somebody had just run onto stage. And the, my, my gut instinct was, hey, they're panicking my bag. You know, I need that stuff. You know, I'm staying over tonight. I need that stuff. So anyway, I turned around quite um, fired up and aggressive and about to say to somebody, why are you, why are you nicking my bag? And I realised there was smoke coming out because the lights from behind the stage had caught onto the fur Jeez. lining of my parka. And um, my brand new coat was in pieces. Anyway, it was so cold, Nick. The afternoon session, because I was booked for two slots, the afternoon session, I had to present in my coat with feathers floating around behind me. You know, the feathers were literally coming out of the scorch marks. It was unbelievable. <laughs> I love that. Thanks for sharing that. And do you know what? Actually, that's one of the things that really shines through uh, with you as a speaker, as a human generally, is that you do give the ups and downs. Um, like mentioning no names at all, you do see a lot of kind of ego-fueled kind of personas in the speaking world, don't you? And oh, absolutely. you very rarely see the reality behind a lot of people. And, you know, it's easy to get caught up in it. I mean, Nick, you, you will know this yourself. Um, when you when your um, your working life consists of walking, you know, and we're talking outside of COVID, obviously, here. But when your working life consists of um, going onto a stage, having the MC build you up as somebody really special that the audience should listen to, because that's the MC's job. They might not think it, but that's their job. Um, so they, they might not believe what they're saying, but they're saying, you know, Nick Elson is greatest speaker in the world. We're really proud to have him. Anyway, you go on and you've got 100, 200,000, 10,000 people lapping up every word that you say and giving you applause at the end. It's, re it's actually really hard not to build an ego through that. Mm. So it must be really difficult not to be um, not to be elevated internally by that in some way, shape, or form. Um, you know, I'm really glad that you say that. I, 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 you know, try to be rounded about it and show the reality. You, know, you ask my missus, and she'll tell you that I'm probably the most egotistical <laughs> bastard she's ever come across. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, look, it's um, to be fair. I'll probably get the same treatment as well. <laughs> if I was being completely honest about it. But I. You know, I think I think we're fairly like-minded, Nick. And the yeah. reality is that it's an honour that each and every person in the audience gives up their time to listen to what uh, you know what we've got to say. Yeah, exactly. Um, so you mentioned earlier on about how we met. It was at the HR department conference. I can't remember where it was either. But 
I'll be honest with you. At the time, I was not in too good a place. Um, I, I was not doing what I'm doing now. I was I was doing something else at the time. Um, I had it was just at that kind of point where I was looking at kind of like what next. Um, I I've been through a lot of kind of challenges with mental illness and and, and mental health challenges and everything around that. And I was at that kind of tipping point, I guess, um, where I felt I wanted to do something with it, but I couldn't see how it could work. I felt I wanted to deliver a message, but I didn't feel how, I didn't see how it could play out. Sure. See what I mean? Um, so it, it was around about that time. There's kind of like a, a kind of a perfect storm of events, really, was I was in a, a, a networking organization called Four Networking. Yeah. Um, and through that, that I, you get to see a lot of people speak. And I couldn't see anybody really delivering that kind of mental health thing that really connected with me in that way. Um, but there were some amazing speakers. So, for example, people like Brad Burton, through uh, what Brad was doing, that I didn't want to be that kind of motivational speaker in that sense. I wanted to be different to that. But I love what he, I still love what he does. Um, and, and he was one of my kind of first mentors. It was his kind of training thing that I went on to kickstart that. And then through the network, I met people like Taz Thornton. Uh, yeah. And Taz Thornton, again, very much the kind of a motivational kind of type speaker. And we've, we've had both of them on the show. And here is the trilogy. But you won't even know this. When I turned up at that event, you actually gave me a real shot of hope. And that's why I've been so excited to get you on the show. Oh, wow. I had no idea, Nick. No, you didn't know. I wanted to keep it kind of under, under wraps until now because I've actually got goosebumps talking about this now. Because I actually sat, I said, not in a good place. I, I sat down on that evening and I heard you speak. Now, I'm not from the accounting space at all. And as you said, that, that phrase fell into accounting seems to come into, a, into play a lot, doesn't it? But, um, and I was not in that space. And you were delivering about HR, I think, at the time. And it's the first time I'd saw somebody mix an inspirational message with a professional uh, message, so a business message. And it captivated me. And it also showed me that I didn't, again, I didn't want to be, uh, I didn't want to be in that business space per se, but it showed me the way of, of what could happen if I start to kind of frame my own experiences around mental illness, mental health, and how that could work as a non-solution focused person. So it was through seeing kind of, it's like an evolution, seeing both Brad and Taz and then you, it was in the space of a fortnight. You actually showed me a clear way forward. And actually the, there's something to be said for, if I didn't see you on that night, I think life would have panned out a lot more differently. Wow. I had no idea, Nick. I'm, I'm truly touched that you've mentioned it. And um, you, you know what, Matt? I, I think you, you've actually hit on a point for uh, that, that's that been part of um, the content and the stuff that I've done all along. Because, you know, Brad, I, I know Brad really well. He's a good friend. And he is a fantastic motivational speaker. He's, uh, you know, he's inspirational. He can fire up a crowd. Um, but everybody is their own person and has their own unique blend of assets that they can bring on stage. And one of the things that I've always tried to do, uh, you know, my, certainly in Bossit as well, and this was identified mm. by a guy called um, Brad Smith, who was um, his chairman at Intuit and Nordstrom's, the, uh, sorry, he's on the board of directors at Nordstrom's, which is a um, US department store chain. And he picked out that the book was a combination of um, inspiration and um, yeah, inspiration, motivation, but also action as well. It combined mm. the why and the how. And it, I guess that where that's come from is just from the stuff that resonates with me as well. 
It certainly mm. isn't deliberate. I would love to say, but I designed it to um, inspire that guy, Nick, who I was going to meet in the lobby outside. <laughs> I would love to say that, but the reality is that it, I, I've kind of just replicated what somebody else must have done at some point and just ripped it up and done it myself. But I think this, this comes down to you're prepared to be vulnerable in your inspiration as well because you do like you said you share the whole journey you share, so even in that in that business context you were sharing your experiences within that good and bad and again that that really resonated and i think that's the thing with vulnerability we, the more we show of ourselves like you built a depth of relationship far faster and stronger than you would have if you didn't do that and yeah, it, it's important and this you just never know where first of all you never know who's gonna who this is gonna really land with because unless you actually keep contact or have messages or you just people spin off in a different direction and you've changed somebody's life in a positive and you didn't even know about it. I, I had no idea at all. And, um, you know, I think vulnerability as a subject is really important. It's something that we all carry, but we don't all necessarily show. Mm. You know, um, we're brought up, you know, certainly I've brought up a generation, I presume you were too, where, um, you know, stiff up, not, not really stiff up a lip, but, you know, man up and mm. you, know, you don't talk about the negatives. And, you know, if you, you know, certainly when I was growing up, if you go out of a group of mates, it's about boasting rather than admitting where things went wrong. Mm. You know, um, I, I grew up in a generation where you don't necessarily boast about having more month for money. You boast about how much you've made last <laughs> month. You know, it's all of that stuff. You, you present the veneer. And um, that, that's one of the really big challenges, uh, not, not just in the speaking world, uh, but in life in general. And I think it's been exacerbated through social media and the highlights reel mm. that is most of our Instagram feeds and so on. You know, we, we show the good stuff, but we don't necessarily show the bad stuff. Um, and I think there's a, there's a time and a place for the bad stuff because nobody wants to see the, the deepest, darkest resetting <laughs> of your mind every day. But I think it's also really important to be balanced, not just, and it's not, not just a selfish thing to get it out there, but it's also a really important thing to, um, to try and contribute towards the, the societal permission to be able to do it. Because mm. 10 years ago, 20 years ago, you wouldn't have been able to go on stage and say, yeah, I'm here because I've messed up. Yeah. You know, it's only been in the last five years that Gerald Ratner's been able to get on stage. <laughs> okay. And Gerald yeah. Ratner, I've, I've never heard him speak, <laughs> but I can guarantee you, Gerald Ratner can teach any businessman a fantastic lesson. He's got a really valuable lesson because it's all well and good hearing Alan Sugar or Richard Branson say about how they made it. Mm. Isn't it more beneficial and more powerful to learn about how someone lost it all? Yeah, absolutely. But we didn't accept that kind of message until a few years ago no no absolutely i think fast forward from that point that we were speaking about where we met that i think the next time i saw you was in july 2018 at xl london at accountex now i popped over to say hello the one thing that i really kind of stood out that was my debut in the accounting world and yeah kind of that's kind of where i, where I fell in um <laughs> and the whole day was an amazing thing for me it was i actually used that kind of at the time i was on social media that hashtag of journey complete because um five years before that point i was being taken out of the venue by st john's after having a panic attack at the event i wasn't even speaking really? i was just a salesperson absolutely lost trying to knit the goodie bags off the stands when the sales guys weren't looking we've all been there um yeah. 
and fa fast forward five years, and, and that was my journey, my end of part one, really, uh, of which, like you said, you were in right from the very beginning without even knowing it. Um, <laughs> what really struck me, though, genuinely, I'm not saying this because you're on the call now, was was your following, and I use that word quite intentionally, that you, where you were going, that people were just looking, people were following, people wanted to be part of what you were doing, uh, not just your event, it was when you were walking around, uh, I remember you walking into a panel event, actually, I think that's where I first had a lot on the day. Um, now, your visibility and your profile is, is high, obviously, you've worked hard to get it that way, you're very kind of accessible, but also visible, of course, on social media, how do you manage that potential overwhelm or or potential risk of disconnection by overconnection? If you see what I mean. Yeah, that's a re really good question, and I have to be honest, I'm quite oblivious to it. I guess because um, if I was to feed back to you on that day, I remember the day clearly. Um, you know, we met on um, on the keynote stage. I think you had just done your session, and we were changing over, possibly. Um, yes, that's right. I remember it well when I was sat on a panel and I, I pretty much, um, yeah, I remember dumping my bag down, chatting away on the panel and then being told actually the presentation started. So I, I remember it clearly. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, honestly, Nick, and I, and I say this genuinely, I'm, I'm oblivious to it, um, but I am conscious of the very fine balance between, um, between being out there and having a loud voice and being truly connected. And the reason I'm mm. conscious of that is because I'm, you know, I always am very conscious that there is a tipping point. And there's a tipping point at which you just simply cannot keep up with the true connection and mm. a community becomes an audience. Yeah. So if we were to take, for example, you know, someone who's done a fantastic job in community building and then migrating that community to an audience, that would be Gary Vaynerchuk. Yeah, he'd be the first person who comes to mind. But if you were to look at the early days when he was a bit chubbier, had a bit more hair, and um, was actually a bit less sweary, believe it or not, you know, he's um, he's definitely evolved over the years. But back when he was he was doing his wine channel and he was just breaking out as a bit of a um, influencer about how to use social media, um, you know, that was that was really his um, his key differentiator at that point. He was still very community focused and replied to every comment and you know, was always there and on the ball. And over time, you know, he went from whatever you know, his following must have started at zero. But whenever I jumped on, I have no idea where he, he was. Now he must be at millions. I have no idea. And I've actually disconnected over that time. Um, the reason I've disconnected is because it's gone from the perception of a relationship and a community to the perception of an audience. Yeah. You know, an audience who will buy my stuff and, um, you know, like my posts and comment, but there's no there's no reciprocal nature to it. So I'm very conscious that there is a tipping point at which a community grows to such a point that it's actually very hard to manage. I don't think I'm there yet, but I'm more than happy to be um, slapped down into place and told to get over myself if I get there. <laughs> it's I, I guess it's one of the... Um, one of the downsides of building a personal brand and working on PR and so on. Yeah, I mean, I think I saw a post from you recently on LinkedIn that you had like 33,000 connections or something that um, that's going to take, I mean, even if it doesn't take a lot of kind of uh, connectivity or messages, it's kind of, it's still a lot of beeps and pings and notifications, isn't it? It's, it is. So across the platform, I'm at 170, I, I believe. It's about 170, wow. 180. 
um split down oh it's largely on twitter and twitter is pretty dead now so um fortunately i've got the number and i've got the ego boost but i don't have the um the time commitment <laughs> that sounds dreadful <laughs> to say that but it's a, okay. it's a fairly dormant community yeah um and yeah it, it can um it can be overwhelming um it's just one of those things that I've kind of got used to. But what I've also always tried to do is to um, is to value the the time and effort that whoever is communicating with me has put in. Yeah. Um, now, some people listening to this might think, you know, what I sent him an email on LinkedIn and he didn't respond. And I try to match the time of the effort. If it's a copy and paste sales email, yeah. I've got an auto. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. a ball filter. I'm not going to swear, but a ball filter that, that clears it out. Feel free. However, Apparently, I've got an explicit rating on Apple, so we're all good. So feel free. <laughs> but if um, if somebody's connected with me with a genuine message or a heartfelt message, um, something that's come from their fingers rather than a bot, then I'm more than happy to engage with it. And it's um, it, it's actually surprisingly low compared to the absolute numbers. Yeah. So, and also in the same vein, I guess, that as somebody that is a voice, is somebody that does put their opinions out there and actually do stand you stand up for what you believe in, um, do you then find you attract kind of, maybe not necessarily trolls, maybe trolls, but things like negativity or kind of people that set out to kind of do you in the, in the possible way? Yeah, so I do, um, but not as much as, not as much as some. So... Yeah, cyberbullying in particular is something that I absolutely detest. I think that mm -hmm. it's, um, you know, we as adults really should be setting the example for the next generation. And I think we are letting our kids down by acting like plonkers online. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think the possibly the, the biggest culprits are actually those, you know, who are 10, 20 years older than us, Nick. You know, Absolutely. the biggest culprits are people my parents' age. You know, my, yeah. uh, my parents have both turned 60 this year. And, you know, that demographic, they've, there seems to be very little connection between their two ears and, <laughs> and the stuff that's supposed to be between it. Um, but also very little filter between what they're thinking and what they put online. Yeah. So they can sometimes inadvertently upset people without realising the impact that online communication can have. Um, I think people, you know, so I've just turned 40. I think people my age are a bit more reserved, but can sometimes be deliberately provocative. And then I think my eldest son, so my eldest son is 22. And you, you can see we all have kids young. Yeah, we're quite a compact family. Um, my, my eldest son is of the generation where really he shies away from social media because of the, um, because of the nature of it, because of the tone. So to go into a bit more depth, about the question that you've asked about negativity, do I get it? I, I don't get as much as some people. And the reason for that is that I don't try to deliberately attract it. I think yeah. that there's, um, there's a very fine balance or there's a spectrum, should I say, between being a people pleaser and trying to satisfy everyone and deliberately being Marmite and trying to alienate people. Absolutely. And there's somewhere in between. And that somewhere yeah. in between is who you are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and everyone's like at a that. different point on that spectrum and i've tried as best as possible to be who i am with a few yeah. ground rules so um whilst i whilst i speak my own voice and speak my own opinion i don't get into political arguments online 
I yeah. try not to be boastful online. And um, you probably noticed by the fact that I put in a swear filter on myself. I try not to say something that I wouldn't say in front of my mother. Yeah, that, yeah. that's just the real, that's the real simple ground rule. That's not so, about filter, really, is it, to think of life that way? <laughs> yeah, so they're, they're the rules that I have, whether I'm on stage, whether I'm on social media and so on, and whether it's a personal, hidden away, you know, um, Carl's private account on whatever platform, not that I have them anymore, there's no point, um, right the way through to speaking on stage with a microphone and everyone hearing it, I think it's really important that that message is cohesive and true to yourself. Yeah. Um, so I've tried to do that. So what that means is the combination, I hope, of not trying to be polarizing. You know, I genuinely think that I'm, a, I'm an okay person. Yeah. So if trying to be that okay person, plus a filter, you know, whilst I might viciously disagree with someone's political views, left or right, I know that I'm never going to change their mind in 140 characters on Twitter. And I've tried it before, and it doesn't work. So I tried to correct the internet. <laughs> I tried to correct the internet, and I've now got a website. So that if it's very clear after one reply, someone's not going to reply to me, or, or they're not going to agree with me, I send them to a website to say, if you feel like if you feel like you've won, fantastic, you've won. If you feel like you're you've lost and you're really upset with me for stopping the argument, I'm really sorry, um, but I'm not going to entertain this. Yeah, <laughs> and I like um, that's a great just, idea. Yeah, so I'll, um, I'll share the link with you, Nick, afterwards. Mm. But it's, um, it, it, it's a few lines that basically nips any um, internet trolling in the bud when it comes to debates on paradigms that people might not share. Yeah. Um, so for me, the only, the only trolling and negativity that I really have, I mean, there might be a shed load behind my back and I have no idea, and I wouldn't really want to know, um, I've been called an egg a couple of times by people on Twitter and things like this. But also, um, you know, people I grew up with, that can sometimes be challenging because I came from quite a normal upbringing. And Interesting. I've done okay in life and, you know, the vast majority are happy for me, but some people will have little snipes just to, mm. um, I know, satisfy their need to have a snipe. But you know what? I'm I, Thankfully for me, and I know this, this certainly isn't the case for everyone, but for me, I can compartmentalise it to words on a screen that yeah. might have come from a bad place. Mm. Um, the problem you've got is we've seen how those words on a screen can impact people like Caroline Flack, for example. Absolutely, yeah. And, you know, I think that our generation, sort of circling back to where I started my horrifically long answer to this simple <laughs> question. It's fascinating. Um, I think that we as a generation, you know, our age... No one older, no one younger, our age, and we need to step up and take responsibility for being the change that we want for our kids yeah. and making the internet, making society, making communications a, a much nicer um, environment to be in. Yeah. Because guess what? If kids see their parents arguing on the internet over Donald Trump or Brexit, all of this stuff that doesn't matter. Yeah, it doesn't impact us day to day, does it? It doesn't no. put food on our table. It doesn't take food off of our table. If they see us having these debates and getting stuck into hugely, hugely complicated things like, um, you, know, you know, looking at Palestine versus Israel and the pros and cons of each side, and none of us, none of us can communicate that effectively in a Facebook status. Yeah. So absolutely. Why? Why make it antagonistic? Why indulge those who just want to feed off of it? And why set the set the example and the precedent for our kids to follow? Mm, yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for that. 
a lot of my subscribers are budding speakers. They come through the speaking academy sessions that run. Um, sure. So can you remember your first ever kind of paid pro gig? Uh, and can you remember how you felt about that? How did it feel for you to step up for that very first time with a pang sign on it kind of thing? Yeah, sure. So um, I'm actually going to answer that in a really strange way. And I'm going to launch a home truth to begin with. So I started speaking in 2003, I believe, right. and I didn't charge for years. And when I say years, I mean years as in probably nearly a decade. Right. So, um, you know, it, most people look to go into speaking with the intention of getting a bit of experience at local Toastmasters or networking groups and so yeah. on and then stepping up to paid gigs very soon. I don't know if it was a confidence issue deep down that I hid. I don't know. I don't know what it was, but I didn't. You know, I, I didn't actually charge for speaking stocks for some time. However, um, in building my business, I used to win business off the back of being on stage. So it's kind of payment in kind by having the opportunity yeah, to speak to the audience. Um, so I remember my first two gigs. The uh, and the reason I'm gonna I'm gonna give you two is because they were both um, they were both formative in my speaking career. Um, so not only were they the first two paid because there was work to be one in the room. And in fact, the second one probably earned me well over seven figures. So I guess wow. it was paid, even though I'd pay 500 quid to be on stage. Um, <laughs> yeah. The first one was to a room of martial artists. So little known fact, before I was heavily involved in franchising, I was involved in martial arts world quite heavily. Still am, actually. Not a martial artist myself, never worn pyjamas in my life, but um, I was, you know, I was looking after martial arts schools, got involved in setting up the British Taekwondo Council and a few other bits. Um, and I was asked to go up to Nottingham to speak to about 20 martial arts school owners. So I went up there and do you know what? I absolutely loved it. I smashed it, Nick. I was on stage, I was talking. Two and a half hours later, I had, um, I'd exhausted myself. <laughs> and I didn't realise, I didn't realise, because I'd had no formal training, I didn't realise the importance of timekeeping. Yeah. I didn't realise that, you know, these, these martial artists, they're expecting Carl the Gobby Essex boy, you know, Carl the 23-year-old is just going to talk through some slides. They didn't need Tony Robbins coming in and doing four <laughs> hours instead of one. So anyway, I did two and a half hours and I loved it, but the audience probably hated it, probably all busting for the loo, hungry, decaffeinated. Yeah, it was, um, I imagine, it was a pretty poor experience for them. So anyway, the second speaking slot that I did, and again, this was the second one. So the first one I learned on my feet, the etiquette around speaking. I learned the importance of timekeeping. I learned through the um, disgust of the organiser that, you know, it's, it's probably a good idea to check where you are on the schedule and how it all fits in. And for me as a speaker to be flexible rather than the organiser to be flexible. Anyway, the second one was probably six months later and i was at the motor museum i believe in warwick possibly and i was speaking to a room of franchisors and so the first one i was flying with confidence i smashed it second one i had um at the time he was my boss he became my business partner he was in the audience and there was probably 25 30 um franchisors in the room so they were all very valuable contacts for us. You know, my business was um, around network accounting for franchises. It was, a you know, to get a franchise or contact was a really valuable contact for us. And anyway, I got on stage 
and I died on my ass. I um, you know, I got the dry throat. I got the um, you know, when you when you got your microphone, you could hear the dry throat. You know, you you've probably been manic. You could Absolutely. you can hear it, and you think, <laughs> oh my god, can everyone can everyone else hear this? Yes, they probably can, but it goes within ten seconds. I had the sweaty palms. I was shaking, so I positioned myself behind the lectern to kind of protect myself. You know, all of the usual things. And anyway, I, I was really fortunate because I recovered within 10 seconds. And I understand that many speakers still have that 10 seconds, even after years of speaking. Mm. Uh, I'm, I'm really fortunate that I don't, but I didn't realise, because I was learning on the job, I didn't realise, and it felt like an incredibly traumatic experience. But what it did was it caused me to evaluate what was it that caused that? You know, what, what beliefs in my mind was it that made me nervous on stage? What was it that made me fearful? What was it that I could improve to um, to make next time better? So I really revisited everything. I revisited my relationship with my voice and how I communicate with people, um, making sure that, you know, I knew that logically speaking on stage and being stood up is the same as, you know, sitting down now one-to-one. Logically, it's the same thing, but emotionally, there was a disconnect there. So I really tried to break that down. And I also had a good look at my content as well, because my content at that time was very professional. It was facts and figures, and Mm. it wasn't really true to me or how I would speak to someone one-to-one. I'd also massively over-prepared. And one of the things that I found was that preparation isn't for me. Now, I know some people (laughs) really work with preparation, some people really work by flying by the seat of their pants, and I'm much more of a latter. Um, I tend to work my talks now, you know, if it's whatever the length is, if it's half an hour, break it down to three slots for 10 minutes, if it's an hour, three of 20, or anything in between. Um, I have a you know, one word for each of those, and that's what I run with. And I can generally put together a good structure um, on the hoof while I'm speaking. Then I tried to script it. I tried to prepare. I rehearsed. And <laughs> yeah. here's the thing. When you when you write out a script, you know the script, but no one else does. <laughs> exactly. So you forget one word on your script, and you're like, Bugger, I meant to say this. And it just throws you out, doesn't it? I'm, I'm sure you've been there. I'm, I'm sure oh, you've yeah. had other speakers in the academy say this. Um, and I think that was part of what caused the problem. Was that I'd over-prepared so much. And I knew it you know, almost word for word of where I wanted it to go. And I knew the order and I knew roughly what minute I wanted to move on to the next slide and so on. But something must have just thrown me out. And it's like, oh, this, this have not gone to plan. Um, so, yeah, after that second slot, I, I had a lot of um, reflection on what works for me as an individual, what works for me um, in terms of the message that I'm trying to give. And also what works for the audience, what makes it into a better message for them. And then from there, I just, I, I just spent you know day after day, week after week, month after month, seeking out every opportunity. And the reality is, Nick, and I hope you don't have speaker bookers listening to this. I'll probably speak for free <laughs> for the rest of my life because I just bloody enjoy it. I really do. I don't enjoy. And the that stuff. really comes across that passion. Yeah, Absolutely. I don't enjoy the stuff that goes around it. You know, um, I've flown out to California to do a speaking slot and. I, I don't know if you've ever done the flight to um, to California, to San Fran or LA. No. Anyway, it's a it's an 11-hour flight, I think it is. And 
it's great. You know, the speaker booker laid on first class, all the nice food and all that. But anyway, you get off and you're groggy because it's about one o'clock in the morning when you get off normally. And you don't really sleep on planes anyway. And I can't sleep during the day. I get to the hotel. So, yeah, jump out of San Fran Airport, this was, um, straight into a taxi. Um, taxi took me about 45 minutes through Silicon Valley to the hotel where I was staying, which was, again, beautiful hotel, the Fairmont. They couldn't have laid on a nicer do. They, they must have spent probably 10 grand in just travel and accommodation. I walk into the lobby and I got recognised by someone as I walked in. I'm then recognised by another group who has heard me speak before. And then I got to the check-in line and I knew the person in front of me and then the person behind me knew me, but I didn't know them. And it's that stuff that's hard work when it comes to speaking. And that sounds, you know, that must sound awful to somebody who travels and is lonely and wishes that they could have that connection. Mm. But that's the tough, that's the tough bit of speaking yeah. is being on duty from the moment you land to the yeah. moment you're back on the plane again. Uh, and even sometimes on the plane, you're on duty. I remember um, getting off at Heathrow on a different speaking slot and there was five other speakers on the plane. We were all yeah, we were grubby as anything. We'd, we must have stunk. We'd been on this plane for 10 hours and <laughs> we got off and we were talking to each other, but all probably trying to mask our breath and yeah, get, to, <laughs> get to the nearest toilet to freshen up. Um, so, so yeah, look, the, the actual speaking side of it, the, the buzz of just before, you know, getting in the room, feeling out the audience, getting to know the crowd, being on stage, speaking to after, you can't beat it. You can't yeah. beat it. It's, it would just be amazing if it could be teleported to the venue. <laughs> I mean, it's been a great feeling over the past. And thank you again for sharing that. And I know you've posted about this on LinkedIn a while back as well, that it was such a great feeling over the past couple of weeks to start to get those in-person bookings back in. Because yeah. um, it just, I don't know, like you said, it's just different. I mean, this is good enough. Speaking virtually is good enough, but it's not that, it's that final kind of tactile energy mm. edge that you miss. It's actually being able to riff with your audience, isn't it? And I always, I very often describe it as the closest thing I come to euphoria or kind of a spiritual feeling when you're in flow with an audience. Oh, it's, it's massively amazing. So, um, yeah, the kind of stuff you can't do here. The, the last speaking slot I did in Silicon Valley was in 2019, in November. And I remember quite clearly, because I saw a picture of it afterwards, and I just realised how overweight I was and still am. Um, yeah, I'm going to blame it on post-flight bloating, but no, really, it's because I'm carrying 17 stone rather than 12. Um, but, you know, stagecraft is a big thing of mine, and I've, I've never studied stagecraft. Well, I respect it and I appreciate it when I see it. And there's something magnetic when you see a speaker who um, is comfortable enough in their own skin, not to hide behind a lectern, but to actually walk around. You know, it's just magical, isn't it? And yeah. when a speaker is happy to change their pitch and their tone and their pace, you know, all of this, all of this stuff that happens on stage, and it might just appear natural, but actually there's a whole load of effort that goes into it to make it work. So I always try to make sure that when I'm on stage, I'm very conscious that I could be quite boring. My messages certainly are boring because I'm talking about small business and business is generally boring. You know, as much as people try and jazz it up, it's boring. It's about buying something for a fiver, selling it for a tenner over and over and over again. <laughs> so I try to inject a bit of life to it. And the difference between being here looking through a Zoom call at each other, um, or even worse, doing a Zoom webinar where you can't see the attendees, <laughs> yeah. versus being on stage. 
is that you know I, I have the pictures of me in Silicon Valley sat down on the stage. You know, I literally jumped off the stage and just sat on the end of it and had a hug for hug with the audience. Yeah. Um, it's the fact that you can walk around the audience. It's the fact that you can you can do this stuff that you wouldn't normally believe a speaker can do. And certainly when you're stuck in this kind of environment or, you know, for a webinar, the only difference I have is that I raise my desk and I'm standing up. But actually, <laughs> it's really not the same. Combined with that, the fact that all of us are listening out for the Amazon driver. Because we know that they're going to bang on the door. And, <laughs> yeah. yeah, they're going to bang, run. They're going to rev their engine up as they drive out. So we've got that risk. We've got the dogs barking. We've got the kids yeah. screaming. We've got the light that's coming at our eyeballs 24-7 at the moment. <laughs> um, yeah, I just can't wait to be back on stage. So I'm, I'm, I'm really glad that my diary is starting to fill up again. Nowhere Good near stuff. as much as I'd like, I have to be honest. Yeah, um, but I think there's, know, also, there's this cultural kind of it's kind of slow it's like turning a ship around isn't it it's just mm. i think everyone's just waiting to see kind of what happens next how comfortable things are going to be and so i absolutely get that I and mean, i've got no doubt your diary will fill up very very quickly um, yeah and i think there's there's going to be a load of um human discomfort and what well, i mean yeah. by discomfort is not necessarily reluctance but i believe that a lot of people will have a fear that will kick in when it comes to an event with lots of people yeah. You know, I've been um, I've been traveling back and forth to London pretty much throughout lockdown, apart from the times when I absolutely couldn't. Um, but I know people who are only just going back to London and they're finding it quite overwhelming. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm, I'm planned to be speaking at a business festival in Austria, which is outdoors, which I think is admirable. It's going to be a great way of getting 5,000 people together with lower risk. Um, nice. But there will probably be, I imagine, if they sold 5,000 tickets, there'll be 2,000 dropouts. Yeah. yeah because absolutely. of that human fear of going into a crowd again. Yeah, absolutely. So you mentioned you have uh, three books. Uh, the most recent is Boss It. Uh, I believe it's a W.H. Smith bestseller. Is that correct? I, well, it, that's a tricky one to answer. It was a W.H. Smith bestseller. I can only ever confirm or deny if I've seen it in the charts. Um, I last saw it in the charts at the end of May, so I don't know. In early June, it wasn't in Paddington's charts, but they're different across the country. So I, I can't say categorically that it is currently a bestseller. Um, However, um, I can say categorically it's an amazing read. Um, thank it's, you. It's, it's a book that I read and reviewed. The link is in the, the bio to this as well, so please do check it out and buy and stuff. Um, but again, it's it's you in paper form, and that's what I loved about it, is that there was lots of uh, somebody who's self-employed with aspirations to, to be a business, a bigger business than this. Um, there was lots of tips and lots of tools, but actually in it, I could tell that you'd wrote it because it felt like your character coming through it as well. Oh, that's, that's amazing to hear. And that was um, probably the key driver for me of the book. Um, one of the challenges I had, so you've, you've, um, you've seen the startup coach. And the Startup Coach was a serious book. So I just signed the contract. I was given a contract by Hodder and Stoughton, who are the world's second biggest publisher. And I don't know if you've ever, I mean, this is going to be a really obscure reference, but I don't know if you've ever read the autobiography of Ian Wright. Um, the no. Footballer. Okay, but anyway, he was talking about when he got offered a contract with Arsenal and he didn't even read it. He didn't care about how much he was paid. It was 300 quid a week, but he just signed it. You know, he was so desperate to sign that contract. And I did the same. Um, you know, it was a book contract, world's second biggest publisher. I hadn't intended to write. It wasn't, 
you know, I got a D at GCSE when I went back to school to do English. I, you know, I, I wasn't an author, but that wasn't my world. And um, anyway, I signed it. But what I didn't realise was that because it was a series book, I had to write in a certain format and tone and style. Okay. So it had to be professional, Carl, with a level of, um, you know, the word count was defined, the number of exercises were defined, the chapter structure was defined. And I really couldn't inject my personality into it in the way that I wanted to. Um, Bossit, thankfully, the publishers gave me um, much more freedom to run with it and build the structure as I saw fit. So I, I'm really glad that it's that's actually come through as well because yeah, absolutely, that, that was does. what I'd, I'd hoped to achieve. Yeah, absolutely. So when you're not being an author, a speaker, a small business champion, an ambassador, um, what's Carl like outside of a kind of work? Do you actually live outside of work at all? Um, am I right in thinking actually you have roots to your local football club as well? Yeah, so, um, God, where do I start? So no, I've got, I, I think first and foremost, I'm a husband and dad. So um, I've, yeah, I've got an amazing wife and got kids ranging from, I've got five kids, um, eldest is 22, down to... Do you have junior. a telly? Sorry? <laughs> Do you we'll have a telly? We'll be getting a telly soon, we'll be getting a telly soon. <laughs> so you were saying, how old are the kids? Yeah, so 22, but way down to four. So I've got a, um, oh, I, I've wow. got a good range. Um, but I'm not aiming for a football team because I was involved in the takeover of a football club, as you mentioned, mm. in 2019. Um, unfortunately, I had to step down officially in early 2020 because I was um, about to take on another project that would have involved um, quite a bit of travelling. Yeah. And the reality of running a football club is completely different to what most people would imagine. Mm. You know, I had this um, boyhood romantic dream that football club ownership would be like football club management, would be like whatever a fat kid who can't play football would do. Um, and I thought that I'd be picking players and negotiating contracts and all of this stuff. Anyway, Hungerford Town, National League South Club. So sixth tier of English football, which yeah. is really quite high up. Um, we actually, whilst I was there, we achieved the first ever transfer, that got a transfer fee coming in. We, um, we built a new stand, you know, we did loads of stuff. But the reality of running a football club, and I hate to shatter anyone's dreams here, is it's the same as running a really bad business. Mm. You know, a really bad business with a screwed up financial model that just doesn't work. That's um, crazy, isn't it? It is. The football world, right the way through to the championship, actually, is absolutely screwed. And it's screwed because you've got teams like, um, you know, in our league, we have Billericay, who had a massive wage bill. You know, they were getting players like Jermaine Pennant and so on. Um, we had wow. Torquay. So we had Torquay, um, yeah. Yeah, Hungerford won their match against Torquay, which kept them in the league pretty much. Um, Torquay had about 5,000 people attend that match. Okay, Hungerford's town population is about 5,500 people. <laughs> okay. Average attendance, we managed to build it up to about 350, 400. So as a percentage of population versus attendance, we were up there. You know, no other town has got a football club that's so well supported, apart from possibly Dulwich Hamlet, if you were to separate the village of Dulwich from London. From London, yeah, yeah. But even so, it's, you know, it's quite impossible to do that. So um, we, were, we were really staggered by what we'd achieved in Hungerford and how we'd transformed the club. It's now at a sustainable point. And 
Uh, yeah, I've still, still got a relationship with the club, but I just simply couldn't commit to yeah. stepping up to be chair if I was going to be flying around the country. Yeah. Obviously, a few weeks later, this strange thing called COVID happened. <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> it's an interesting one. Actually, in a few episodes' time, we have uh, the one of the directors of Bristol Rovers Football Club come on here because, like you were saying, they were my, my boyhood club. And it's, it's interesting because you've got that kind of that cosmetic version of the club and it, you, you kind of think it's all going to be... And then I started doing some work with them on the commercial side of things, hmm. uh, some hosting and emceeing and stuff. When you see behind, like you said, as a business, it's just crazy. Yeah. You know, somebody who's so, been in business for a long time, hmm. like the rules don't apply. <laughs> no. So um, running a football club is... A, a, Certainly at National League South level and Bristol Rovers, I know they've been in the National League recently, haven't they? Um, yeah, a few seasons fact, ago, yeah. Yeah, I've been rained on a few times at Bristol Rovers. Um, so I'm a Southend United supporter. So <laughs> okay, yeah. I've, I've been there a few times and I know that if you don't pay the extra few pounds to sit down, you get rained on. Um, <laughs> That's so one, yeah, yeah. I've been one of Welcome those to poor Bristol. sods. <laughs> you know, I've been one of those poor sods that you've probably seen trying to um, hide under the... There's a chip hut on the left. From what I remember, That's right. yeah. Anyway, um, but at, at that level, certainly at national league level, the um, the primary business, certainly at Hungerford anyway, was around running the bar rather than running the football club. Yeah, and the bar and the members club actually subsidised the wages of the team. Right. Um, yeah, but on the flip side i'm going to i'm actually going to go against what you just said as well because i've been fortunate enough to work with arsenal as well so oh, i've wow. seen i've seen football commercially from you know top end premiership if you can call arsenal top end nowadays <laughs> right the way through to grassroots non league you know hungerford are really punching above their weight and should be a few leagues lower you know when you look at fertilities and financing and so on with Arsenal, um, we were, you know, I'd say we, D&T, my core business, was invited to deal with their franchisees. And um, I used to, you know, I used to split my attention when I was younger between Arsenal and South End. So yeah. I spent probably as much time at Roots Hall as I have at Highbury, you know, before it was the Emirates. And I had this romantic vision of Arsenal as well. So you've mentioned the, the vision you had of Bristol. Um, I had this vision of Arsenal. And I had the vision of... You know, George Graham was a manager, he used to be the player. I had the vision of Paddy the groundsman, the guy who dresses up as a Gunnosaurus. Um, you have the first team, you have the reserves team and the youth team, and that was it. That was my vision. That's what I believed Arsenal was. Okay. I went to meet them at Hydry House, which was the building opposite the old ground, but is actually the offices for the new ground. And um, went in and I was staggered. It was exactly the same as visiting Centrica or any of the other big corporates that I've worked with. Wow. I got my visitor's badge with my photo taken on as I went in, had to scan in, had to get taken to the staff cafe where they offered me a, you know, a cup of coffee and so on. And it was identical to you know, Free Mobile and Centrica and all of these companies. <laughs> you wouldn't have known it was a football club. You'd unless, have no unless idea. Centri Unless Centrica started working out of porter cabins, it's definitely different at League Two level. <laughs> yeah, no, um, honestly, at Premiership level, it's rows of desks interesting. and meeting rooms over five floors. Wow, that's really interesting. So I genuinely could talk to you for hours, but for the sake of our audience, <laughs> I think it's probably best to draw a line under this one and get you back for the next season. I've, you've, we've got so much more to chat about. Would love to.
been an absolute pleasure. So the question I ask everybody that comes on the show is this. I have now been made the MC of O2 Arena. 20,000 people have paid out harder money to come and hear you do your thing. I'm just about to call you the stage. Your walk-on music kicks in. That song that motivates you, that lifts you, that gets you at peak state. What is that track? Wow, it's got to be something that puts fire in your belly, hasn't it? And do you know what? It would be M-Beat featuring General Levy Incredible. Awesome. That, along with everybody else's choices, will be on the playlist at the end of season two, so stay tuned for that. Carl Reader, wow, this has been an amazing chat. Big round of applause for Carl. Thank you so much, Nick. Thanks for donating some of your busy time to us, and uh, we'll definitely see you again. Uh, thank you. And for everybody else... Uh, please stay tuned for the Forge Ahead Show, episode 17. We have another amazing guest to bring you. And um, please do hit like and subscribe and all that kind of stuff. And in the meantime, stay happy, stay well, and take care. And I'll see you soon. Cheers, guys. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And that's a wrap. A big thank you for tuning in to today's show. Please stay tuned and hit subscribe for future episodes, bringing you amazing guests, sharing amazing content and amazing insights. Really excited to bring you these. The Forge Ahead Show is sponsored by nickelston.com. If you want to connect with me, you can find all the ways possible through the website. If you want to drop me a message, always great to hear from you. But in the meantime, if I don't catch you before, I'll see you at the next episode. And you take care, guys. Cheers now. Bye. Bye-bye. Fawcett is available globally at all good bookstores, physical and online. Check out this best-selling book online at carl.2 slash book.